Hello, and welcome to the podcast that explores the theology of the coronation rite, devised by William Gulliford and hosted by William and Anders Berquist, produced by me, Emily Colkvite. This is The Crown Uncovered. Welcome to The Crown Uncovered, the podcast which endeavours to make sense of the coronation rite for those in and connected with the Church of England as it prepares for the 6th of May 2023, the coronation of His Majesty King Charles III. And it's great to be sharing these sessions with Dr Anders Berquist, my neighbour down the road. I'm at St Mark's Regent's Park as Church of England vicar there and Anders likewise at St John's Wood. And... 30 years ago, he taught me or tried to teach me some theology. (laughs) Uh, We're in conversation about the coronation and the theological significance of it. And just because it's 70 years since the last one, uh, it seems a good opportunity as members of the Church of England to have some sense of what's coming. Well, I have to say that I'm rather uh, envious uh, of you um, because... As you can guess from the name, I'm not originally from this country. I'm Swedish and I'm a Swedish citizen. So I'm from a country that has a monarch, uh, a long-established monarchy. But uh, our king had no coronation. And that's 50 years ago. It's his golden jubilee this coming autumn. So happy jubilee to Carl XVI Gustav. But but he had a a kind of inauguration. Um, And the same thing happened with King Harald of Norway when he became king in 1991. Uh, He had an inauguration, sort of like the inauguration of a a president, except that it did happen in a cathedral and it wasn't the Lord Chief Justice who did the business, but the, the the Norwegian primate. But it sounds as if... What we're going to experience on the 6th of May is uh, much more traditional than those new-style European monarchical inaugurations. Absolutely. Not just more traditional, although it is a tradition which goes back at least until 973, and this podcast is going to try to trace some of that history and the accretions and developments and refinements over the years... But within the rite are some really profound Christian mysteries that I hope we can explore and unpack and just give people some sense of the radical nature of, really, because uh, it's very exciting to rediscover these things and, and see the connections, not least with ordination and even baptism. So you think maybe then that one of the differences between a coronation and an inauguration is that uh, something is um, done to the monarch uh, that is a bit like an ordination, that the king will be somehow consecrated as the monarch and not simply uh, formally introduced in his new role? I think certainly in the 10th century and in the 9th century, as these rites were developing, that was very much in the minds of those who were developing those rites. Um, we were not so far then from the uh, time of the ancient Roman Empire, of which there was still some memory, certainly from Byzantium. And as 
as church and state had become really quite closely allied in the early days of Christendom, and bishops were, in a sense, part of the operation of government, it seemed quite natural to, to see the overlap between the two offices and certainly the vesture of bishops and emperors was very similar simply because uh, they were throwbacks to the earlier days. So yes, I think there is a self-conscious connection being made, which certainly before the time of the Norman Conquest was natural in the minds of hierarchs, priests and and uh, kings. There then becomes a, a time where there's more of a refinement of that in the 11th and 12th centuries and some concern about the papacy that they may have allowed something more than they'd intended. But inherent in the right and in the right that we saw in 1953 and I'm sure we'll see in 2023 that there are many overlaps with ordination and not least the use of the oil of chrism uh, to set aside, to set apart, to ordain, to consecrate, to hallow the King of England. So what would you say then is the difference between the accession and the coronation? Because it's at the accession that the king is proclaimed as the king and he is already the king, though he is not yet crowned. Um, what's the, yes, what, what, what is the element that the coronation brings to the monarch that he doesn't already have by virtue of his accession? That's an important question and certainly one which gets teased out constitutionally in, in this country in the Middle Ages. For somebody like William the Conqueror, his arrival and his coronation happened within a very short space of time. The coronation was very important in underlining, making public something which had happened in his case by battle and usurpation, it could be said. But uh, it, there is a, a definite sense in which the coronation is the public proclamation of something which has happened uh, and without which the continuation of the reign is very hard to uh, to let happen. But uh, in in once the hereditary principle had become established in England, the accession is the key moment, but the coronation is the confirmation and underlining of that. But certainly, probably in the Saxon period, the coronation is the the moment of absolute certainty that the king has acceded to the throne. So we're dealing with two historical currents uh, which come together in the coronation. Right, I'm not particularly up to speed on the history of English coronations, but I'm quite interested in things that used to happen in the Byzantine world and going even further back. And there, there is a strong sense that the uh, coronation of the emperor is a, a consecrating of a person to perform a sacred role within the life of society. And perhaps the English coronation is unique in transmitting into the present generation some of those ideas um, that go way back. I mean, they, you can go even uh, further back. Um, I suppose that Byzantine coronations originate out, or they grow out of, uh, the crowning of Roman emperors. And, and that was a development, really, of the acclamation of the imperator, of the emperor. And it had a sort of more military background. Um, you hoisted the emperor uh, onto a shield, uh, something which I don't think is going to happen in no, Westminster. Though, <laughs> though it is echoed in a very interesting way in, in our writing. It certainly existed in the Saxon tradition before the 
uh, Saxons had converted to Christianity, exactly the same thing. They were elevated by their peers on a shield. And I think one of the interesting theological developments of that is, as we will see, when after King Charles is crowned on the throne of St Edward or the chair of St Edward in front of the high altar at uh, Westminster Abbey, he will then be led and quite literally lifted into the higher throne behind it in the theatre by two bishops, the Bishop of Bath and Wells and the Bishop of Durham, surrounded by the great officers of state, many of whom predate the, the Norman Conquest. Uh, and accompanied by swords and staves and various other instruments of office. And I think this memory of being elevated in that way is fascinating, both from the point of view of reminding us of its much earlier origins in Roman and tribal societies, but inherent in it is too, I think, a sense of ascension. Uh, Because if the right has baptismal echoes, what's happening is that the candidate is being annihilated when the uh, candidate arrives in the abbey they wear the red robes of martyrdom they're then divested they in a sense die and they are then crowned anointed set apart as if rebaptized and then elevated onto the higher throne which is the trajectory of our baptism death resurrection and ascension to reign at um, with Christ at the right hand of the Father. But uh, there are several things that are coming together in all of this, and they are very um, dependent on, as you say, Roman and, and even tribal customs. Now, I'm picking up very strongly from what you're saying that uh, there are all sorts of things that are going to happen at the service on the 6th of May that are uh, deeply intrinsic to the the whole event, uh, the, the, 
not well to call the to call it simply the crowning of the monarch to call it just a coronation perhaps puts an undue emphasis onto the putting of the crown onto the king's head uh, and i remember hugely enjoying uh, that splendid film johnny english in which uh, the usurping Frenchman uh, is plotting to uh, have the crown set on his head by a fake Archbishop of Canterbury. And the premise of the film is that it is the moment that the crown touches the head of this plotter that he will become undeniably and inalienably the King of England. And so that moment must be foiled at all costs. Uh, that reflects the popular sense that coronation is about putting a crown on a head. You've already been talking about anointings and about hoistings onto seats and uh, are there other things that are really important at the coronation that are not about the crown that we're going to see? Yes, I think one of the reasons... I'll take you through the, the sequence, but one of the reasons the coronation part of it became so much the focal point was because, not least in the last coronation, Archbishop Fisher felt that it shouldn't be televised. So the screen went blank, more or less, or there was a... Um, no visuals at all, although, of course, the people in the Abbey could see what was happening. Over the St Edward's chair, as the Queen um, sat in a linen garment, as if a baptismal robe, as she was anointed underneath a gold canopy borne by four knights of the Order of the Garter, the screen goes blank. This was regarded as the most holy moment of the rite, the anointing, but it wasn't seen publicly. The coronation which then immediately follows, he described as the visual climax following the spiritual climax of the anointing. So the rite has 17 sections. <laughs> I'll try and go through them very briefly and let's, let's discuss them. We'll have other opportunities to, to quote the various prayers. The litany is sung before the king arrives and then as the king arrives... Psalm 122 in the form of Paris I was glad is sung. Then the king is presented uh, by the archbishop at the four corners of the compass uh, by, by the archbishop to, to their peers and acclaimed. This is then followed by the oath and then the presenting of the Bible. And in 1953 this took place, uh, this was overseen by the moderator of the Kirk. We then move into the Eucharist proper and then the anointing, which begins with the Veni Creator. And then there's a rather splendid bit of Gilbert and Sullivan when the king is presented both with spurs and a sword while they're still half-dressed, in a sense. Not everything has completely finished in terms of the investiture. Then the monarch is invested with... Uh, the rest of the vesture and the final parts of the regalia, uh, which include the scepter and rod and the coronation itself in the St Edward's chair. The Archbishop then blesses the King, who is then taken by the two bishops who accompany him to the higher throne. This is followed by the homage, which begins with the Lord Spiritual and then representatives of the Lord Temporal. The Eucharist then continues with the Eucharistic prayer and at the end of the reception of communion the king goes into the St Edward's shrine to revest in the imperial robes, an imperial crown, 
divesting himself of the priestly robes and crown of St Edward, then the Te Deum is sung as the monarch and the royal party then leave the abbey. Um, so lots of things being being handed and given there, and there are spurs and there are um, swords and um, scepter and, and auburn and everything. I notice the absence of boots. Uh, <laughs> why no boots? Because boots were... A significant thing in the Byzant- making of Byzantine emperors. And in fact, if you go to the treasure in Vienna, there's a fantastic pair of uh, highly elaborate uh, slippers that were used at the coronations of Holy Roman emperors. Um, we've got everything else. We've got acclamations going back to the acclaiming of Roman emperors, but no footwear. Well, what a, what a shame that there aren't uh, splendid, uh, splendidly made boots. I think this is largely because of the putting on of spurs, which did happen until, I think, the reign of James II. Uh, and the, you can only imagine that even gold spurs will make a nasty gash in an ermine robe. So I suspect that uh, that was why they were... The, they, whatever boots there may have been, and there's no record of them in the regalia from the earliest records of the regalia, but whereas there is, I think, from the 12th century, a record of spurs. Another thing that just struck me as you were as you were recounting that series of episodes is how much of that material is very distinctively Christian, being given a book, uh, given the Bible as what's the phrase that's used as the the most precious thing that this world affords, and um, the celebration of the Christian Eucharist, uh, obviously. Um, does that how how does that work in our society, which? contains so many different communities of faith. I think this is one of the important questions that we're hoping to explore in in these episodes. It's precisely what it is that we as the Church of England are hosting and where the space is for any innovation to recognise the development of society. This is a subject clearly for discussion and debate. I I think we need to begin with the, the reality that this is a service of the Church of England, presided over by the Archbishop of Canterbury. It has a very particular Christian history that any dilution of needs careful thought. Uh, That doesn't mean there isn't room, as there was in 1953, for the moderator of the Kirk to to play a part as a representative of the wider United Kingdom. And I think uh, the the, uh, space to invite guests from other traditions is very, very important. But I think we need to hold on to the fact this is a Church of England ceremony. It doesn't exclude other opportunities for people of other faiths to to pay their own tribute. But I would be sad, personally, if there were considerable dilution of this right. It'll be really interesting to hear what Dame Julia Neuberger has to say about that when uh, uh, you speak to her later. What you've just said is that the connection between church and state is so um, fundamental to the whole architecture of the coronation service that you can't um, pick it apart without the whole thing falling apart and so you've got to connect this very very christian thing to a multi-faith society it's going to be really interesting to see how that happens. Uh, another thing that struck me just as you were talking was um, how many things have to be done at the coronation. I think you said <laughs> 17 episodes. Um, 
That's going to take a very long time. And again, since 1953, we've become a society that's rather less able to pay attention to things over the long, over the long period. Um, do you think the people of England are up for a service that's going to last a couple of hours or more? That's a very good question. I, I think, certainly with the Queen's funeral, which, while the service itself was only an hour, the attenuations of it with the processions to and fro and then the move to Windsor... My sense was those who started watching it stayed watching it for the rest of the day because the whole thing was so beautiful, so right for her and and just beguilingly impressive. I have a feeling that likewise this right will draw people in in ways they are not expecting. But I do think to do our job as clergy of the Church of England, we have to understand it ourselves so we can be preparing people for it. Mm. I would be sad if they uh, reduced it in length considerably, precisely because there are all the, these things. Uh, interestingly, Edward the Seventh in 1902 was very keen to keep it pretty short. Uh, and there were clever ways of doing it. So certain processions all happened uh, under the cover of, of various other things that were going on. And I think there's, with imagination, good liturgists, and at the Abbey they are very good liturgists, they ought to be able to achieve that. But I can't see how you can do it in less than two hours. Yeah. Now, I take your point about the way in which people were engaged with the whole process at Her Late Majesty's funeral, because I watched it with parishioners being screened live in our parish hall, and people stayed. They stayed for hours and hours, and were just very caught up in the whole flow of the thing. So, yeah, maybe the same thing will happen here. been talking uh, so far entirely about the what happens to the king to king charles what is going to happen to the queen and what if you like is the point of what happens to the queen <laughs> because uh, she's the queen by virtue of being the the king's wife um very she... good question not least because if if there aren't that many people present alive now who were actually at the last coronation there's nobody i don't think alive now who was at the previous coronation in 1937 when uh, Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother as we knew her was crowned Queen Consort. Uh, there's interesting precedent for having not crowned Queen's Consort who were present at the coronation of their husbands and likewise the... Uh, and the famous case of Queen Caroline banging the door to try to get in at the coronation of George IV. Exactly and and of course the Duke of Edinburgh uh, where was not crowned as Prince consort, if, if well, he wasn't prince consort, uh, and certainly my daughters are, are worried that the idea of a queen being crowned because they're simply an adjunct of their husbands is just another proof of the patriarchy. Uh, but um, I think it, 
It's a rather beautiful adornment to the right. It doesn't have to happen. It has been announced that it will happen. I think very sensibly they're not going to use the crown that Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, was crowned with, with the Colonel Diamond. They're going to use the crown that was used for Queen Mary. How wonderful to have lots of crowns to choose between. <laughs> uh, and I think it's just a symbol of the Queen Consort's engagement in everything that is called, her husband is called to do and she is called to do, and it's a dedication of her service to the nation. Um, and I think it, it doesn't have quite the attenuations. And uh, There is an anointing of the Queen and a coronation, uh, but there isn't, there, there isn't the divesting and revesting and, and so on. So there's less of the consecrating behaviour around the Queen in comparison with, with the King. Another difference about this coronation is that it will be a coronation for the first time at which the full works of 21st century media coverage will be exercised. And there was Passé Newsreel of uh, 1937 and then uh, there was the televised, famously televised broadcast of most but not all of uh, Queen Elizabeth II's coronation uh, but we're going to be in a whole different league with this one aren't we in terms of the way in which the television coverage is done certainly and as, as we saw at the late queen's funeral it was beautifully curated i mean what the bbc the the the, the, the prep that they did for that was astonishing uh, really wonderful angles on what we now would refer to as the coronation theater where the where the where the coffin sat during the service in Westminster Abbey. It, it was the birth of the television age in 1953. I mean, a lot of people bought televisions, not just in England, in England but a lot of... Uh, my wife's family is French, and a lot of them were telling me that they, uh, they actually bought their first television in order to watch the coronation, even in France. So uh, this is something which has global ramifications. Mm. They could have televised it in 1937, just about, couldn't they? Uh, I think there, were, there was a lot of reserve about that, uh, not least because the then Archbishop, Cosmo Gordon Lang, who was a, a friend of the Queen Mother's, she was very fond of him, as the, who, the Queen who was to be crowned with King George VI, and he was very worried that if it were uh, re- relayed live, that people would be uh, listening and watching with their cloth caps on in pubs and public houses. And uh, this was regarded as something that certainly... Mm, whereas on this occasion, public houses might be doing a roaring trade <laughs> with big screens. Uh, uh, which uh, parks and uh, which people uh, can be watching. <laughs> I've enjoyed this conversation uh, enormously. Uh, what are we going to be thinking about uh, the next time? I think it's important that, especially if we're looking at it from a Church of England or Christian point of view, that we have some substantial input on the Bible. So I think that will be a very interesting next port of call in all of this. Thank you for listening. In our next episode, William chats with Rabbi Baroness Neuberger 
about issues of kingship and anointing in the Hebrew Bible and matters of interfaith representation at the coronation.